Just when we thought we were finished recording this podcast, Patty had the most fascinating conversation with an acclaimed screenwriter and producer who hopes to bring joy in Jack's lives to the screen. Todd Komernicki, who produced the beloved Christmas classic Elf and was the screenwriter for Sully, among many others, is here with Patty. Thank you for joining us for the Behind the Scenes of Becoming Mrs. Lewis podcast. Of course, there are endless conversations that could be had about Joy Davidman, C.S. Lewis, and their love story. But we put together a collection of episodes that we know would bring light to both who they were as people, who they were as writers, and who they were together as a couple. This new conversation adds to the depth of the podcast and their stories. We hope you enjoy. I am Patty Callahan, and this is Behind the Scenes of Becoming Mrs. Lewis, an in-depth exploration into the improbable love story of Joy Davidman and C.S. Lewis. You'll hear the stories behind the stories of the best-selling novel Becoming Mrs. Lewis, along with interviews from some of the foremost experts on their lives and love. Todd Komernicki is a New York-based prolific writer and producer of film and television, as well as an acclaimed novelist. Komernicki is the president and founder of the production and management company Guy Walks Into a Bar. Komernicki and Guy Walks partner John Berg produced the Christmas blockbuster Elf. He wrote and directed a movie adaptation of one of my favorite novelist's books, Resistance by Anita Shreve. Komernicki's screenplays include Sully, directed by Clint Eastwood, Perfect Stranger, starring Bruce Willis and Halle Berry, The Professor and the Madman, starring Mel Gibson and Sean Penn, God's Spy, the true life story of pastor-turned-spy Dietrich Bonhoeffer, The Greatest Gift, the true story behind the film classic It's a Wonderful Life, Heart, the true story of the only professional athlete to ever play with a transplanted heart, and the thriller Savior, which is set to shoot in summer of 2020. In television, Komernicki has written pilots for ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, and TNT, and is currently finishing his new pilot for MGM. Todd lives in New York City with his wife Jane and their daughter Remy and son Dashiell, which is where we're recording today in New York City. I'm thrilled to have you sitting here talking to me about movies, screenplays, life, and adaptations. Because honestly, writing and life so mingle now that the more we learn about one, the more we learn about the other. So I want to start here. I think it's interesting to tell the listeners that we knew each other as children and then didn't see each other for over 30 years. I needed some time apart from you. You were a powerful personality, so I needed about three decades. Just to kind of absorb what yeah. was happening. And to watch you from afar. <laughs> and to see you climb the bestseller list and uh, applaud from the rafters. And then we finally talked after I wrote Becoming Mrs. Lewis. We both, on separate paths, chose a first career. You were a baseball star at Wheaton. And we're going to be a sports announcer. And I was a pediatric nurse. And then we both started writing 
We both, and separately, discovered the power of story until our paths converged again. So I want to hear, and I want you to tell our listeners about your reason for entering this field and a little bit how you ended up here, a star athlete headed for sports announcing, and boom, here you are. I knew one day I would wind up in a tiny booth being interviewed by Patty Callahan. So I did anything I could to achieve that goal. So actually, I can retire now. This will be my last podcast. Did you connect the dots until it hit this day? In this time? I'm not allowed to say, but I do have in storage all the calendars with the X through the days. And, yeah, it's it's true. Everything I'm going to say today is going to be 100% true. So please mark it down if you're in Now we know why you write movies. The main thing I would say about my view of life is that it has almost nothing to do with what you want to do. Mm. And it's what you are supposed to do, what you're called to do. And very much tied to that scripture where um, in Corinthians, when it talks about, can the left hand say to the right leg, I don't need you? Can the eye say to the ear, go away? The way things seem to be knit together in this world, both with the animal kingdom and everybody I've ever known, is that we're not all supposed to have the same skill set. We're not all supposed to be singing. We're not all supposed to be designing buildings. We're not all supposed to be farming. But each of us, if we find the place we're supposed to be, make up this incredible uh, Mandela of light and color and beauty, which is God's creation. It's when we kick against that, and especially when we tell other people to not be who they are, that we crumble and burn. And crumbling and burning is sometimes the best thing that can happen. Well, I just mean as a society. As as an individual, crumbling and burning is fundamental to growth. So I'm a big fan of crumbling and burning. I've done plenty of it. But the message that we get quite late in life is that being who we are, being fully who we are, accepting the things that make us cry and make us laugh as identifiers, as markers of who we're supposed to be, that creates deep peace and that we should let the river flow where it wants to flow. And much of our youth is spent throwing up dams or, you know, sandbagging areas off and say, well, I'm not going to go there because that's not cool or that's not what I want. And we reroute our lives and spend a lot of time banging into things when we had a clear path. Or it looks alluring or it looks like what we thought we wanted. Yes, that's part of the lie. You know, allure is a great word or... It used to be a terrible word in old mythology, glamour, yeah. you know, and now it's it's a magazine that we're supposed to to look at and aspire to. The siren to. song. Yeah. yeah. So glamour is is always a lie. The truth of who we are is written in who in within us anyway, and it's learning to listen to that song. I had an amazing conversation with a dear friend of mine who has spent the bulk of his adult years surfing. And he makes enough money at odd jobs in between to just go surfing for six months. And he's found himself incredibly in rhythm with nature, with the wind, the waves. But he always felt like it was something else. There was something else. So he and I began having a conversation about Jesus. It's probably two or three years ago. And he had been raised an atheist and he had knew nothing about Jesus. I mean, he knew him as a cultural figure. But he didn't know anything about what Jesus had taught or said or was about. And as I shared with him... This is what he taught about love. This is what he taught about service. What my friend said is, well, that's exactly what I feel about love and service and nature. And what he had never known was that something that happened 2,000 years ago and then, you know, prophesied thousands of years before that had been the song of his own life. And when he got to be introduced to Jesus 
at the age of 39, he said, all this time I had this in my heart. I just never knew that it was Jesus. You put a name to it. But there was an actual moment for you where you were heading down a path and you had a teacher who said, wait, you're good at this and changed your path. Well, having a great teacher, yeah, in terms of getting into writing and this move from sports, that was a desire. I mean, I loved sports. You reach a point when you're in college, you're sort of, you can see that you're headed that way or you're not. And then I thought sports casting, but it was so limiting. What was fun about sports casting is it was storytelling. So. I would get on the radio and just tell jokes for two and a half hours. And it was good. I built up this little cult following among the students. They listened in to see what was irreverent. and But nobody really cared about the game. And how many times can you say, Johnson across midcourt with a left-hand dribble before you pass out from boredom? It's much more fun to be playing the game than talking about it. So I was betwixt and between. I didn't know what I was going to do when I finished college. And I certainly had no interest in being a writer, no knowledge of any part of, of writing. I, I like to read. That was about it. And I liked movies, but I didn't put the two together. And my senior year, I happened to, by God's grace, wind up in this poetry writing class. And the midterm was you had to write 10 poems. I don't think I'd written a poem in my life. Wow. And the assignment was you had to do a haiku, a villanelle, a sonnet, free verse, 10 different kinds of poems. And at the end of the class, after we had turned this in, Dr. Baumgartner, Dr. Jill Baumgartner, who I adore from Wheaton College, she handed everybody's papers back except mine. And then she dismissed my classmates in a cloud of patchouli. I don't know if uh, your college experience is like that, but all the lit majors had sort of like pig pen in peanuts, walked around with dirt. They had patchouli, and you had to wear a surgical mask to be around them. It was very strong, patchouli, not my favorite scent. That's so funny. A little smells like a graveyard, I think. Everybody's gone. Tiny little Dr. Baumgartner is standing five feet away from me. She walks over, and she hands my papers down on the page in red ink, ironically, in red ink, was an A. It was circled. Mm. And that's when she Were said you what stunned? you had said. I was completely stunned because I had felt that I'd been kept after class because I had failed you were in so trouble. miserably. Yeah. yeah, that I was going to be embarrassed, that she would have embarrassed me if she did it in front of the class so she was being gentle with me. That's what I thought was going to happen. And that's when she said, if you want to, you can be good at this. And that was the beginning of my writing life. Yeah. And what you just said about glamour, it makes me think of John O'Donohue. He has this talk on beauty and talks about the difference between beauty and glamour. And what beauty really is in storytelling or in life and what glamour is. It's a distraction away yep. from true beauty. Yeah. So you and I are both working to adapt Becoming Mrs. Lewis, and we're going to talk more about that in a minute. So along with your brilliant production team of Seth Parks and Jonathan Coleman at A Guy Walks Into a Bar, as I look back at your history, I see how many of your screenplays are adaptations of true stories like Mrs. Lewis. Elf. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Sully about the pilot of the Hudson River Miracle. The Professor and the Madman is a true story about the creation of the Oxford English Dictionary. God's Spy is about Bonhoeffer. Heart about the first professional athlete with a transplanted heart and on and on. So why do you think it's so important, or if not important, why do you enjoy writing about true stories? Why do we want to see them on the screen? I think why we want to see them on the screen is that it feels closer to us. There's so much, especially now in the comic book movie world that we live in, everything is so fantasy and there's no room for humanity. In fact, what's happened in the in the messaging of those movies, even though they're impeccably made and great acting and you know a lot of art goes into them, the message essentially has been that human beings have screwed up everything 
and this group of superheroes who are afflicted with their excellence against their will have to save our raggedy That's movie after movie after movie. And they're flawed, and then they become to realize how good they are, etc. But it's not us, because we don't have some superpower. We're not one of seven people We're on not Iron Earth. Man. Right. You might be Iron Man. I'm no, not Iron no, Man. No, I'm not. <laughs> Ironic man, maybe. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Sarcastic man. But because of that, there's this huge gap in what audiences want to see or are offered to see. So there's a hunger for that true story because we put ourselves in that position. We want to ask ourselves, do I have what it takes? to do what Sully did. Sully was not mm. trained to do what he did. He was trained to be excellent. He had spent a lifetime becoming the right man for the job at the right time. And he didn't even know it. He didn't know. I mean, he became famous yeah. after the fact, but that was actually a harder plane for him to fly yeah. than before. He was just a man doing his job. Mm. In the same way, everybody on that plane, the crew, all the emergency workers that rescued people and kept people safe so nobody died, Everybody was just doing their job. That we can relate to. We can be a hero to our kids. We can be a hero to our students. We can be a hero to the guy at the local deli if we cheer him up or we talk about what's going on in his own life or how his mother is sick and how we're praying for him. It's like that reminder of our connectivity and the importance of each individual to a story, I think, is why those movies resonate for audiences. For me, the reason I love them is because they keep coming my way. I'm not inviting these things. This, these things are just coming and coming and coming in waves. Clearly, it's what I'm supposed to be doing. And the bulk of them have had to do with people that are alive. Oh, wow. So I'm sitting with the heroes of their own stories. I have the sacred trust to cradle the story of their lives. I have to put words into their mouths, words they have never said, but words that but must reflect anyway. their yeah. truth of who they are. Okay. So that high wire act is a very holy and mystical thing, and it builds friendships. I mean, Sully and I are tight. He's the best. So you meet with people that are significantly better than I am, and they challenge me as a human being, and they also challenge me to get the truth out, which includes other flaws. And then there's writing about, which we're doing with Joy, and which you did with Bonhoeffer and with Professor and the Madman, about people who are gone. So you have to extrapolate what you think they meant. And in some ways, I feel like it might be a little bit easier than someone you're having to sit across the table from and represent who's still alive. What do you think? I don't think you could measure easy to, to hard, but not being able to call the person up is definitely hamstringing. Yeah, I wish we could. Well, I feel like you know Joy so well, it's as if I could call you and I would And then I can read her poetry yeah. and then we figure you, it out. You know Joy inside and out. So your work has been in novels. How many novels have you written? Three? Three, Three novels. Four. My second one, it's supposed to be your first one that doesn't get published. My second so one went unpublished. We all have one of those in a drawer. Writing, directing, producing. It's exhausting. So why did you start the production company and head off in that direction? Streams of stories. Because in Hollywood, it's very different than writing a book. If you write a book and you're blessed to get it published, it's out in the world. But when I started 30-plus years ago, about 10% of scripts that were bought by the studios or hired by the studios became movies. Now it's probably 25 or 3%. Oh, my gosh. That's so disheartening. So almost nothing gets made. <sighs> so what, you've, what you have is I'm making a living doing this, but it's, it's not being produced. So I got into producing so that I could have my hands in more stories that I loved that I didn't have time to write or maybe didn't have the propensity to write or the desire to write. Right. But I wanted to help with the storytelling, and that led to 
a couple of movies being produced. And now I'm attached to produce whatever I write. So now it's yeah. like— Now you have a production I'm company. doubling down the yeah. opportunity. Some of your adaptations are movies and some are TV series. How do you decide which format? Because when we first started talking, at first we were talking movie adaptation, and that kind of morphed into TV adaptation or series adaptation. How do you decide? And when you look at a story, what guides it one way or the other? Well, the current atmosphere for television has changed everything. Okay. That's there, there was no serial storytelling at all. If you, seven, eight years ago, if you pitched a show that was an ongoing, essentially, 10 one-hour movies about a character, Mm -hmm. you'd be laughed out of the building. Now, that's 90% of what's happening. Now, if you have a procedural, which is every episode ends with an answer, that's dead in the water. So things have changed a lot. And with something like Becoming Mrs. Lewis, what I felt, because of your breadth of knowledge and your love for Joy, the impact she's had in the world secretly through her impact on C.S. Lewis, there was so much canvas to fill that it seemed a shame to do it as a movie. I felt Shadowlands had done the play in the movie from Lewis's perspective, and to do the same from Joy's perspective could come across as like a take back. Or a derivative. Yeah, yeah, derivative or, you know, now it's the other perspective, and that's very common. So I thought she deserves four seasons at least. Let's give at her 40 least. episodes. Yeah. yeah. She deserves it. So we're going to keep talking about Joy. I know you're drowning in requests to not only fix screenplays that aren't working, but to start new projects. So how do you decide which ones you give your utmost attention and energy? Because as I've seen while we're working on this, it's not, I'll dabble in this or I'll dabble in that. When you're working on a screenplay or you're working on a production, you are literally all in. And so you can't just say yes to all these things that come flying across your desk. What makes you decide this is the project I'm going to give my life energy to? This is the project I'm going to spend my time on. Prayer Mm. and talking to my wife because she knows the cost, the time cost. And any time taken in work is taken away from family time. Even though family time, the mornings and the tuck-ins and the weekends are sacrosanct. I never work at, at any of those times. But still, if something's super demanding, it can make the version of me that's available at family time, a little less if something's too daunting and you you know what that's like. I would say prayer is first and foremost. And then there are certain moments, like with your book, which was a beautiful book and it was the reignition of an old friendship. But what I loved about doing this with you is that you've had all the success doing one thing doing it in a different way again and again, which is impressive, but it was this one thing. And I saw this 19-year-old in you standing at the doorway of a whole other career, because it is writing, but as you've learned, it's completely different. And you saying, I want to do this. Mm -hmm. I want to get good at this. And maybe it's similar to the moment where the professor said to me when I was a kid, you can be good at this. I felt clearly that you would be able to do it. And then I've just wanted to be the one to help you figure out how to do it. So it's been beautiful to work with you. And we're going to have something really special for the world. We've been working on it for almost a year. And I know my books take a few years to write, but I assumed, I don't know why I assumed, but I assumed a screenplay was quicker. I thought it was faster, but it's not faster. You've talked in other interviews about writer fatigue and giving up on screenplays 
before the crossing the finish line. And you talk a lot about how a lot of screenwriters get to, there's 5% left, there's 2% left, and they just throw up your hands. And we talked about it like on our very first conversation after we decided to work together. You said, you know, when it's a producer, the hardest and the most frustrating thing is getting the writer to not give up. I said, no, you'll give up on me before I'll give up on you. And you're like, nope, won't happen. And I believe you, but I'm not giving up either. So why do you think that happens, this writer for you? You see it a lot when it's almost there. I think it's primarily cultural. What has happened in our world, they think of screenwriting as a scratcher ticket Mm. and that they're one cool movie idea away from changing their lives. And they'll read an article about some guy from Pennsylvania outside the system, wrote a story about his brother-in-law who was a wrestler and sold it for $1.7 million, and that goes across the transom everywhere. And people don't associate deep craft with something that requires deep craft. Mm. So when people get into it, especially if they have a facility for it and they're getting some jobs or they get an agent, their expectation is that it's done long before it's done. And they listen to the voices that tell them it's done because that's more comforting. And if you're the guy, I'm the guy that says you have a three-legged chair and you're going to fall over and we got to build that fourth leg, I'll always push again. Again, we'll have to start the chair over sometimes. But I will always push because as a writer, I hold myself to the same standard. I will always push until the chair is sturdy. And within the culture of Hollywood, especially Los Angeles writers, there's a lot of this, is this they don't have the nerve. They don't have the old school sort of guts to not care that it hurts and not care that they wish it were done. And they go back to work. So that is the hardest thing. And interestingly enough, because I'm producing so much, we have 53 projects right now that we have in development. And what you have is this new problem which is the writers that I'm working with are all people that I know and handpick now. It's very few people that are new at it. They look to me and they're like, dude, you're going to do the last five yards anyway. So that creates a whole nother problem because there is an expectation, there is a hope from the studios or financiers that I will come in at the end and sort of make everything okay. But that's it's a bad quit. plan. It's a bad plan. And it gets people to quit on the 10-yard line instead of on the five-yard line because they're like, well, why put in the extra effort? Because in the end, it's just going to get polished. And I do that all the time. I do it as uncredited just to fix something at the end. It's a common thing. But it's added to this writer fatigue yeah. and made it more profound. This is the way I put it. Being tired, being broken, being unable to go on is one of the absolute best places you can be in your life because you're about to go on. You're just about to get that hit of oxygen, that drip from the water bottle that gives you another. You're going to go on. So embracing that instead of mourning it. Or lying down in it and wallowing in it. Yeah. yeah. And and having it be reflective of other disappointments in your life or that this just you got to treat, as I said to my sister 20 years ago, I never forgot it. When life knocks you on your and you're on the mat in the boxing ring, you have to remember that that mat is completely made of vitamins. And the only way you're going to get those vitamins is if you're knocked on the mat. So what I encourage writers to do is say, yeah, sit with it, but don't walk away from it because in a week or two weeks or maybe tomorrow morning, you're going to want to go back to work. And it's so much more satisfying to have achieved that than to have walked away and have someone else do the work for you. Well, that's also very much the hero's journey. The dark night of the soul, all is lost. Nothing good is going to come of this. And then the rise from the ashes. You've said 
that one of the favorite things for you about adaptations is subverting expectations, that finding the secrets that are hidden inside what is really overt. Tell me what you mean by that. Well, when you read someone's book and they think they've told the whole story or everything they want to tell, there are always secrets hidden. So I give this faux example, but this is basically what happens. Someone will say in their autobiography, and on Thursdays, I would play Parcheesi with my sister and then never mention the sister or Parcheesi again. Okay. And it would seem to be apropos of nothing. It was just about that Thursday. But when you ask the person, if you really sit with them and say, tell me about Parcheesi with your sister, inevitably pulling that strand of the sweater undoes the whole sweater. And something that's not in the book and that nobody knows winds up to be nine pages of the screenplay. And that's beautiful. That's that detective work that comes with really memorizing a manuscript, knowing a book that someone wrote better than they know it. And often these people have had people help them write it. So even the phrasing of the book, they might not remember when they told their co-writer, about Parcheesi on Thursday. So they're actually excited. Wow, I said that? Yeah, look, on page 84, there it is. Wow, I totally forgot about that. Yeah, my sister just waxed me in Parcheesi every day, and it led to blah, blah, blah. Or on Fridays, we get ice cream. And so that's what makes something special. And Tom Waits says something great about writing songs. He says, all you need is the name of a town and weather. (laughs) And if you say those two things in a song, that people will connect to it. He has a lot of songs in Johnstown, Illinois. He has a lot of songs that are places and weather, if you go back and listen, and it's because we attach to specificity. So, Mm. for instance, we've talked about this with dialogue. If someone says in a script, how's the job going, right? And a bad dialogue would have, it's like, oh, it was really tough. Uh, You know, my supervisor's making me work extra this weekend. I had a bad day. and, uh, And my knuckles hurt from blah, blah, blah. The good version of that is, Stefanski came in late for the third day in a row, and he's riding my about that. So that's how people talk. People don't answer the question. They complain from their own point of view. And if you do that and you are specific, guess what? The audience doesn't need to know who Stefanski is because in their head, they're filling in the blanks. Oh, my goodness, just like Magruder at my job who makes me overdo his work. So giving people room through specificity to attach, it doesn't lock them out. It invites them in. Well, and we've gone through it with Mrs. Lewis where the three of you, Jonathan, Seth, you, will sit down and say, ask me a question. And I'll be like, oh, yeah, wow. And then it'll take me a week or two sometimes, but I'll dig until I find why it ended up in the book, why it was important, and how to put it in a visual page instead of just a sentence hidden covertly in the book. And also, you have, you're working with three different people in this development process. So am I when I'm working with those guys on a script of my own. But everybody has their own point of view. So Seth, who's the youngest, he's 26. For him, all that matters is the impact your book had on him when he read it. He is still in that magical place. When he called me after reading, I was like, oh, you know, you just swept him away, right? Now he's back down on earth. No, he's not. (laughs) No, and his notes are always tied to him getting that feeling back. Okay. My notes are about the soul of joy being clearly articulated and that we go deep, 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 deep as deep as we can go, because this is just one episode of what's going to be 40. So laying all that groundwork. Jonathan is super technical, and he sees the word really technically, and he always carries me in that way when he gives me notes on my scripts. He just 
looks at architecture and he says, that will not hold. You know, what you're doing here on page 75 is a great scene, but it will not hold because you don't have the underpinnings back here on page 28. And if you don't do that, so you're getting a full range of human emotions no, guiding it's awesome. you. And it takes me a little while to absorb it. You know, we do our go through and then I have to sit back and absorb it a little Which bit. Which is right. It's the same for me when yeah. I get notes, good or bad notes from a yeah. studio or producers. You have to marinate. I can't just turn around the next day and dive back. And then if I do, it's not going to be right anyway. No. I've learned so much from you in this writing process. I feel like I'm taking a master class. But one of the favorite things I've learned about is the eternal now. And I want to talk about it because it has shifted even some of my novel writing when it comes to flashbacks. I think I was already doing it intuitively in a lot of places, but there's a difference between doing something intuitively and intentionally. And when you can move from intuitive to intentional, that's when I think things shift in your work. So when we talk about it, I had one of those kind of proverbial aha moments. So tell us how you came to it. You call it a memory slipstream, but you'll do a lot better job explaining it. I've been working on this all the way back to my, really probably my first novel. How that came about was my uncle had challenged me to take a legal pad and draw a line right down the middle. And on the left-hand side, just start telling a story. And as soon as my mind drifted, instead of fighting that, just write whatever came out on the drift on the right-hand side. And when that was done, go back to the left-hand side. And I said, oh, sort of like a jazz novel, you know, where you have the melody and then you riff and then you come back. Everybody always returns. No matter how many solos there are, you come back to the main melody. He said, yeah. So my first book was called free. But when I was writing it on the top of every page of the legal pad, I wrote jazz. And so the narrator of that story became an untrustworthy narrator because he was telling you the story. But then when he drifted, he went into a place that had to do with loss and memory and trauma. And, you know, I, mm -hmm. I shaped it technically after the fact, but that's where it started. So this notion that we are all things past, present, and future at all times, that it's all available to us was sort of the beginning of Eternal Now. So that's 29 years ago. Wow. How I use it in screenwriting is I find, and I think the audience finds, that flashbacks are lazy and annoying because what the writer couldn't figure out how to do on the page, he now is going to tell you that poor Larry, when he was nine, got chased by a wild boar, and that's why he can't eat ham. You know, it's like, come on, we get it. You know, there's a more subtle way to do it. So the eternal now in cinema is that by following visual rules, if, if the scene is about you, Patty, and you're sitting here in this interview booth, and I ask you a question about your love of umbrellas, that as long big as love, I... Big, it's, big, it's, love. She's sponsored by several <laughs> large Callaway umbrellas. Yes, you might see Patty's face on it on the golf course this year. But as long as I visually drift into you, I can go into your eye. I can just drift past your shoulder, which is a nice way to do it, too. And if I do that, I can go anywhere in your memory slipstream, and I can show you as a 17-year-old buying your first umbrella and the great joy. And, you know, it was sunny out, and everyone said, why does she have that umbrella? And you didn't care because it was you and, and that umbrella. As long as I come back out at the end of the scene to where we started— mm -hmm then I have not done a flashback. I have entered your memory slipstream. And for me as an audience member, I know now I'm more intimately aware of you and what matters to you than I would be if the screenwriter just said, 
oh, here's this whole flashback. If you walk the viewer visually through the storytelling, they will fall in love with even the darkest character because we see us in the characters that we follow. Well, and it's how we live our life anyway. Yeah. We're talking and, and a song comes on and we're still face-to-face talking, but we're in junior high for about a second or two, even know what we're wearing, mm-hmm. but then we're right back where we are. So that eternal now in a film, to me, now that you've told me about it and, you know, looking at some of your work, we never stop and then go back and then come forward in this kind of jolting way. We're always It's all flowing. You can't stop. Yeah. So, like you said, how song triggers, that's present, but every single thing that's ever happened to us is with us in this booth anyway. And right now, every night, my son, Dashiell, is begging me to tell him a sports story from my past every night. I feel like I'm running out, or I'm certainly going to run out, so I started telling some about my dad. But what's amazing is that how he enters into them. So... There was a story that I told about something that where I got injured because of some other people, just a story I was telling. And he sat up right in bed and he was like, who are they? What were their names? I want to hurt him. They hurt my dad. Right? To me, it was just a story, just my past. I showed him the scar. But it's eternal now. It's eternal now. And it impacts his right future now. because that's how he sees his dad. And now he remembers that story and it patches into him. So amazing. it's always eternally now for all of us. So. That's amazing. So I need to talk about patience. You are quite literally one of the most patient and calm people I know, especially in this business. And I love this quote in Sully, but you said it was something your dad said, but that you put in Sully's mouth, which is, you can do anything if you're never in a hurry. When I read that, it was one of those moments I just stopped. I move fast, and I tend to, you know, try and, okay, let's get that done so I can get the next thing done. And that's changed a lot in time, especially if you want to write a book. You can't do that in a hurry. But just that quote, you can do anything if you're never in a hurry. But I think you've applied that even to screenwriting, to work, to living, to conversation. You seem to live that out. The one that came before my dad shared that with me when I was probably in my 30s was a great quote from Goethe which is a little more exhausting, but it's also great, which is never hurry, never rest. And that I applied to my work life very much. Uh, My mom said to me when I was 24, 25, I'd had the good fortune of working right away as a screenwriter. And she said pretty much out of nowhere one day, one of the most formative things of my entire career. She said, right now, Todd, you have a little fruit stand, you have a little lemonade stand. And it's on a side road, and it's shaded by trees. And every once in a while, a customer comes by and wants to buy something, and they like it, and they enjoy it, and they tell other people, hey, if you're ever in that neck of the woods, stop by for the lemonade. She said, one day, they're going to put a superhighway in here, and there's going to be countless customers coming by. And when they do, you better have inventory for them. Wow. So from that moment on, I've just never stopped writing. I have so much writing. I mean, I've been fortunate to work and get paid to write, and I've sold things, but I've never stopped writing. Me neither. So having that treasure trove, and also it makes you better. If you just keep doing something again and again, it makes you better. So that lesson of never hurry, never rest went hand in hand with that. that. And then writing books taught me a lot about writing screenplays, which is you can't write page 205 before you write page 11. you got to go page by page, but you have to earn page 205. 
And that requires patience. And, of course, parenting requires patience. Marriage requires patience. Living. Be slow to anger. Woof. (laughs) Thanks for the reminder. And in this business, there's so much waiting. There is interminable waiting. It's like getting on an airplane. It's hurry up to wait. Every movie I've ever been involved with that came out Mm -hmm. has been a minimum of seven years. A minimum. Wow. So Professor of the Madman was 21 years. Savior, which is going to get shot this summer, I wrote in 1997. You can't put a clock on it. And that's another thing. Writer fatigue is, I need this now, I need this now. Well, you don't. If it's not happening, you got to do something else. you got to keep writing. Sully, when I was turning in my second draft, Flight got announced. That Denzel Washington movie. Good movie. Good movie. But even though it wasn't a true story, it was a movie star movie about a plane crash and an investigation. So my producers had to take Sully underground. Even though it was this huge story, they didn't show it to anybody for five years. It was like it didn't exist. And then finally, when they felt the smoke had cleared, they they poked their heads up and it got to Clint. And then then Tom Hanks. Yeah. And then within five months, we were shooting. The waiting, you know, whether it's in novel writing or or waiting for the next round of the screenplay or for an answer. And we talked about it the very first time because I handed in the first draft and it was dead quiet. And I kind of poked at you and you were like, nope, you're going to have to learn. Patience, patience, patience. It wasn't because I was picking on you. (laughs) No, 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 no. We were joking about it. But you kind of touched on this at the beginning, but you do feel like you're called to this. 100%. To this this thing you're doing. You feel this is a calling in many ways. 100%. I feel like I'm doing with my life what I was supposed to do on this earth, yes. Can you tell us what you're working on besides Mrs. Lewis? I'm very close to finish with something that if done right, if it comes out, will probably be definitive in terms of its import connected to what I'm trying to do as a writer and doing something in the culture. Okay. So in 1980, this is a true story, overnight in New York City. You're in high school. I'm in high school. I was 15. Overnight in New York City, all over the city, in every shop window and phone booth, this flyer appeared out of nowhere. And it was an image of a hand curled into a fist holding a phone receiver. And it said, attention, white-collar criminals, blue-collar criminals, you have sinned. Not against God, not against the state, but against your fellow man. And you need to get your conscience clear. Call the apology line at 212, blah, 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 with a little tear off at the bottom of the flyer, and set yourself free. The guy that put all those flyers up was an artist, a conceptual artist named Alan Bridge, who was living on 28th Street. And he had made a deal with the new museum downtown that he was going to build three prefab phone booths. And for the young people out there listening, I don't know if you know what a phone booth is. Superman. Just just Google Superman phone booth and you'll understand. He was going to build three phone booths. And when you first paid your ticket at the museum... The first exhibit were these phone booths, and you could go inside, and he had perceived and pitched to the museum that you could pick up the phone and listen to a loop of what he was expecting to be 30 or 40 confessions that people called in with. He put up 877 flyers. He never did another thing in his entire life except run this line. 15 years. It started as one line. It became eight It was a commentary line added. It was before the internet. People would call in and give advice 
to people who had confessed terrible things. There were categories. You could hit, hit one for adultery, two for robbery, three for assault, four for breaking someone's heart, five for being mean to your mother. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people called, and from all over the world. Ultimately, the line killed Alan. He tried to intervene, but of course you can't save the world, and you can't save even one person as a human being. And it destroyed him. He was 50, and he looked 85. And it was because he had been hearing all this darkness. He'd been hearing these confessions. Yeah, and, and he couldn't do anything about it. He couldn't save the world. So the beauty of this and the beauty of time and the beauty of art is that I think we can fix it. So what happened was I got a call. A producer friend of mine, Mark Clayman, amazing guy. He's a rights hawk. He finds these true stories all over the place and, and brings them to writers. And I've worked with him a number of times. He says, I've got 300 hours of confessions, and these confessions are about 20 to 30 seconds long. I think there's something here. I don't know what it is. What do you think? So I went back to my apartment, and I listened. And all you have to do is hear the first two or three. And I just wept. So I started reflecting, okay, what is here? Well, I love the show Black Mirror. I don't know if you've seen that on... Netflix. It's got, I think, four seasons. It's an anthology show. It's extraordinary, but it is so grim and dystopian that you want to take a shower at the end of every episode. Very, very heart-wrecking. And I thought, you know what the world needs? The world needs White Mirror. The world needs a show that's not about it's all over and it's hopeless, but that we can start again. And here it is. It's this. And so I built a show called All Apologies. Every episode is based on an actual confession. And it shows the power of forgiveness. So being able to remind the world awesome. that this is vital and it's who we are, to redeem Alan's work, which defeated him, it's going extremely well and have high hopes for it. When you hear a story that you feel like needs telling, mm -hmm. you can feel it in your body. If you're receptive, if you're listening, if your heart is open, when there's a story worth telling again, you can feel it. It's time for this. That's amazing. You've talked a lot before in that you feel like you're called because this kind of artist's life lines up with the life Jesus calls us to live, which is, this is your quote, when you're talking about being patient, and which is, don't worry about tomorrow. Don't store up in barns. Live the moment. Live today. Do today. Don't worry about the world. Be anxious for nothing. Yeah, it's so much easier to be a Christian artist than it is to be anything else. Yeah. If you really want to live out your faith, just show up in front of a blank page every day. And then give it to someone to read and give you feedback. Oh, forget that part. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a whole other thing. That's a whole other level of surrender. No, what I want to say about you, Patty, is that to have come to something as a second career, because you were doing something else and then you followed your dream— then to achieve at such a high level. And then at the height of your powers, when you're winning all these awards, best book ever, and, you know, you're changing your name to Harper Lee, and <laughs> you're going to, it comes, comes a Watchman. Is that the name of the sequel? Okay, you're writing the new one. The Watchman's going to town. You're at this, at this, the height of where most people would say, okay, now it's the island off of uh, Greece, and now it's feet up. And instead, you brought your work shovel and your metal lunchbox, you've come to work 
with us, side by side with us, on behalf of Joy, on behalf of this beautiful woman who um, impacted all of our lives so much through how she impacted C.S. Lewis. So you already did that work for her in the book. That could have been enough. And you could have easily said, I turn this over to someone else. But you gritted it out, and you're continuing to. And I find it deeply inspirational and full rock star behavior that you have been doing this with us. And if I keep doing my job, then the world's going to have a very juicy joy in their future. Yeah, they're going to have a great series. Thank you. The power of story isn't tied to a single venue. It's not just novels, just poems, just... So the fascination for me is not just writing a novel, but having a story felt or heard in whatever way we can and to learn a new way to get that story into someone's heart I'll shovel until I hit rock. I'll keep going. What's really cool about the difference between books and and screen is that you're writing a book. It's a one-on-one conversation with the reader. And you know what you're leaving on that page is you shaped it. They're going to recreate it in their own mind. But your work is is done. You, you don't need another translation. Right. From it's It's just words to person. In order to have something be spectacular on the screenwriting page, it must, by its nature, need translation. It must need camera, actors. It it can only be blueprint. So imagine I.M. Pei bringing in a brilliant blueprint, which makes a lot of sense to the builders. And it's like, but it's covered in, hey, guys, don't forget to put in the the beams here and... uh, call Margaret at five and it's covered with scrawls and you say, well, now I can't read it. Now now I can't see how beautiful and perfect it was. So to write a great screenplay is about being totally invisible and getting out of the way while at the same time doing it with art and not artifice. That's the stuff that you're learning beautifully and you're going to have a whole new second career. One of my favorite quotes by Madeline Langle, where she says that a book is a bridge between the reader and the author. But you're right, because with the reader and an author, there is just that bridge. The reader gets to go into their own land. They can cross the bridge. They can make it into their own scenery. But with the screenplay, you need all those other people to translate it into something visual. That's not the bridge. If you look at uh, the back of a book, uh, you know, the inside, and I'll say acknowledgments, and, you know, at the most... If someone's really gabby and effusive, maybe 15 people get thanked. Usually it's like four or five, and then it's dedicated to somebody. How long is a movie credits run? It runs 12 minutes, 15 minutes with these animated movies. Hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people to help yeah. the story get told. So that sense of community and that need that we all have for each other, I also like that. It's very biblical. The eye, the ear, the leg, yeah. that's like the gaffer the best boy, the Foley artist, the editor. Well, and the collaborative nature of screenwriting is so fascinating because you just named all the different skills of Seth, Jonathan, and you, and the different skill set, and then you bring in whatever I have to offer. And the collaborative nature of it is multifold. It's not just for people. Mm-hmm. It it's multifold. It goes out and out and out because you brought it all together as as a collaborative effort. Where when you're alone as a novelist, it's usually not collaborative unless you get stuck and brainstorm with a friend or until you bring in your editor. 
So for the most part, it's you and whatever your imagination or the person you're writing about brings to it. But screenwriting is a lot different. So. It's fun. It is so fun. It's more fun to share the chocolate. Todd, thanks for talking to me. God bless you, Patty. You too. You're awesome. You're awesomer. Make sure to subscribe to Behind the Scenes of Becoming Mrs. Lewis wherever you get your podcasts. You can find the novel and audiobook wherever books are sold. Published by HarperCollins, Thomas Nelson. You've been listening to the Behind the Scenes of Becoming Mrs. Lewis podcast. Copyright 2019 by Thomas Nelson. Based on the book, Becoming Mrs. Lewis. The Improbable Love Story of Joy Davidman and C.S. Lewis, copyright 2018 by Thomas Nelson. No portion of this recording may be used without the express written consent of the publisher. For more information on the people and stories featured in this episode, please visit becomingmrslewispodcast.com. This program was engineered by Sarah Voorhees Wendell at Kingswood Studios in Nashville, Tennessee, and produced by Jolene Bartow and Gabe Wicks. Thank you.